Imagine that night, tensions high, a nation torn apart, a plot here in Baltimore City to assassinate a newly elected president on his way to inauguration and to plunge the country into chaos. Abraham Lincoln disembarked at this train station and under pre-dawn skies made his way unscathed and on to greatness. In the days ahead, we may face a crisis of similar proportion, an outlaw president clinging to power and defying the will of the people. For four years, many have said there will come a moment. Well, this is the moment because this ballot is like none ever cast. Now I'm a lifelong Republican and I'm still a Republican, but this ballot is how we restore the soul of our nation, electing a good man, Joe Biden, and a trailblazer, Kamala Harris, and ensure an orderly transfer of power or plunge our country into chaos. America or Trump? I choose America. Yeah, I think I'll choose America, too. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Going with America? Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of America. We'll go with that, then. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. In Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR. In Minneapolis, St. Paul's Great AM 950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth on those fine affiliates and others, not to mention your favorite podcast site. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. At the uh, top of the show there, uh, that ad from Lincoln Project, which, to be clear... They do not pay to uh, play those on this show, just in case there's any questions. We leave it on there where it says this advertisement paid for by Lincoln Project because we want you to know where it came from. We don't pay for them. I run them because I feel like running them. Anyway, that ad was Michael Steele, the former chair of the Republican National Committee. Well, on Tuesday morning, Steele announced that he would be voting for Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden instead of his own party's standard bearer, Donald Trump. 
in addition to that video you heard at the top of the show from Lincoln Project with Steele announcing his plan to vote for Joe Biden to help save America, and that's no small deal. A former Republican Republican Party chair saying they are going to vote for the other guy in the election. Uh, in addition to that, Steele, who served as RNC chair from 2009 to, two, uh, to uh, 2011, stated in a, an NBC News op-ed today that he, quote, cannot support the nominee of my party. Rather than seeking to build on the legacy of the Republican Party's founders, of which Trump is surely ignorant, Trump has posited a single purpose for the GOP, the celebration of him, Steele wrote. Consequently, America has watched as the Republican Party stopped pursuing its animating principles of freedom and opportunity, he continued. It has given up its voice on things that mattered and instead bent the arc of the party towards the baser motives of one man who is neither a Republican nor a conservative. Right, Steele. Of course, Donald Trump is very much a Republican and would very much call himself a conservative like most of the others in his own party at this point. Nonetheless, if that's what it takes to get uh, Steele to come out and do the right thing, I'm, I'm okay with that. He noted that he disagrees with Biden, quote, on many issues and policies, sometimes vigorously. But this election, he says, is not about those issues or policies. Rather, it is about the course of a nation and the character of her people reflected in the leader they choose. Steele's announcement follows a string of endorsements from some former GOP officials, including ex-governors and lawmakers, who have broken from their party to endorse Biden. Late last month, for example, as CBS News reported at the time, support was seen as growing for former Vice President Joe Biden from former government officials who typically remain on the sidelines of presidential contests and ex-elected officials who are bucking their own party in favor of the Democratic nominee. The public backing of Biden, they reported, has come from military, retired military leaders, Republican governors and lawmakers, top national security and intelligence officials, and even departed members of President Trump's administration, all of whom say Mr. Trump is unfit for another term in office and believe that Biden is the candidate who can tackle the challenges facing the nation. The contentious 2020 presidential race has resulted in what some say is an unprecedented uprising, ranging from senior leaders to rank-and-file officials who have decided to speak out and put country over party, just as you heard Michael Steele saying he was willing to do right there. Former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman last month, a Republican, told CBS News that, uh, quote, these are people from all walks of life, all across the spectrum, who have had high-ranking appointed positions, party operatives, elected officials, who have given their life and soul to the party, saying, I can't do it anymore. This isn't right. She said, I haven't seen this volume of people willing to say publicly, I can't support my party. I haven't either. I've never seen anything like this with so many Republicans actually not just saying, oh, they're going to sit out or oh, they're going to vote for Ronald Reagan this year or some, you know, protest vote, but actually saying, no, 
I'm going to support the Democrats' nominee. Which is interesting, and it is remarkable, most definitely remarkable to see this volume of, of Republicans coming out and endorsing the other party's uh, nominee. But it's also remarkable how little effect it has on that 30% of the population that worships Donald Trump. We'll see. We'll see how much of an effect it has. Because we'll I've got, see, yes. I, well, no, because I've got more along those lines. But uh, since, uh, by the way, since Christine Todd Whitman uh, had come out with her statement, since then, former Republican governors and lawmakers, including Michigan Governor Rick Snyder, who I didn't realize had actually uh, uh, come out in support of Biden, Arizona Senator Jeff Flake finally came out in support of Joe Biden, <laughs> Virginia, Virginia Senator John Warner. Uh, they have all thrown their support behind Biden. The most recent show of support at the uh, end of C- at the end of September, when CBS wrote this, came from 500 retired military generals. 500 retired military generals and admirals, former ambassadors, and top national security officials who said in an open letter at the time that Biden is the pre- uh, is the presidential candidate who has the character and experience needed to, quote, address a world on fire. Among those who signed the letter uh, were two former military leaders who worked in the Trump administration, retired Air Force General Paul Selva, who was the vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff until 2019, and retired Admiral Paul Zunkumpft, who was commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard until 2018. We've also seen a lot of longtime publications who have never endorsed a presidential candidate deciding to do so this year, including a whole bunch of scientific and medical journals, many of which have been around for more than 100 years and never found it appropriate or necessary to endorse a presidential candidate because, you know, they're scientific journals and medical journals. They don't normally step into politics. Well, a whole bunch of them have been coming out this year with endorsements for Joe Biden. More recent publications that are not necessarily 100 years old, but have been around, uh, if not for a century, then, well, at least about five decades or so, without ever endorsing a presidential candidate, now coming out to do so for the first time in the paper's history. USA Today, today, issued a presidential endorsement, opting to back Democratic candidate Joe Biden. USA Today's editorial board noted that its unprecedented endorsement was not rooted in policy differences with Trump. They say it's no secret that the editorial board disagrees with Trump, not just on his approach to the coronavirus, but also on fundamental issues from health care to climate change to immigration and trade. Policy differences, however, are not the reason behind our first ever presidential endorsement. Diverse views, they write, even ones we think are wrongheaded, are a staple of American politics and something to celebrate. If this were a choice between two capable major party nominees who happen to have opposing ideas, we would not choose sides. Different voters have different concerns, the board writes. But this is not a normal election, and these are not normal times. They correctly note this year, character, competence and credibility are on the ballot. Given Trump's refusal to guarantee a peaceful transfer of power if he loses, so, too, is the future of America's democracy. 
Trump, they say, has trampled on the principles of truth, accountability, civility and public discourse, opposition to racism, common ground solutions to the nation's problems and steadfast support for First Amendment rights. The USA Today editorial team argued, in contrast, the board wrote everything about Biden's nearly half century political career suggests he would do a far better job of respecting those values. This extraordinary moment in the history of our nation requires an extraordinary response. They continue with his plans, his personnel picks, his experience and his humanity. Joe Biden can help lead the U.S. out of this morass and into the future. Some of the uh, points they make, bringing them to their uh, to their endorsement of Biden are, well, are well worth note, uh, noticing here. When they write, when Trump was elected as the nation's first president without previous experience in government or the military, we hope that he would become, as he promised during the 2016, quote, more disciplined and, quote, so presidential that you people will be so bored. God, wouldn't that have been nice if he kept that promise? Yeah. After all, uh, the uh, paper writes, when you are a passenger on an airplane... You root for the pilot, even one who has never been in a cockpit before. Whether you are a pilot or the president, the most important part of your job is crisis management. But when confronted with an emergency, COVID-19, the biggest public health threat in more than a century, Trump didn't land the plane safely on the Hudson River. His shambolic response to the coronavirus pandemic has inflated a national death toll that is equivalent to the crashes of more than 1,000 Boeing 737 jetliners. Could you imagine if a 1,000 Boeing jetliners crashed during the course of Donald Trump's presidency? That would be pretty much a, a, a plane crash every single day, a, a thousand times during his presidency. That's how many people have been killed by coronavirus under his failed and bungled and ridiculous and absurd uh, response. What, symbolic to this, response. Uh, yeah, to this uh, uh, crisis. Uh, the paper notes that the U.S. with 4% of the world population has 20% of its reported coronavirus deaths. If America is at war against COVID-19... And, quote, I'm a wartime president, as Trump declared in March in response to the disease. Well, then the invisible enemy is winning and has now even penetrated the White House grounds. They say there is little doubt that Biden would have handled the crisis more capably. He surely would not have become a super spreader of coronavirus misinformation. This extraordinary moment in the history of our nation, they write, requires an extraordinary response with his plans, his personnel picks, his experience and his humanity. Biden can lead the U.S. out of this morass and into the future. Your vote can help make that happen. They conclude by saying, will this end endorsement have any effect on what you read about the presidential campaign in USA Today's news reports? No. Will it cause the editorial board to pull its punches if Biden were to become president? Also, no, we may never endorse a presidential nominee again. In fact, we hope we'll never have to. It's uh, not just former Republican officials and usually 
neutral publications who are coming out for for Joe Biden, the voters now seem to be doing the same. Emphasis here on seem. Florida shattered its opening day record for in-person early voting on Monday with at least 350,000 people casting ballots and election officials continuing to count statewide late into the night on Monday. The trend continues a record-setting pace in the battleground state that is viewed as a must-win for Donald Trump. Voting by mail, which started earlier this month, has racked up more than 2.5 million ballots headed into Monday. According to Politico, that is more than double the same time frame in 2016. In Florida. In Florida alone. Two and a half million ballots by Monday. Now, of course, that might suggest enthusiasm by voters if it were not for the coronavirus crisis, which would certainly help explain the raw numbers that we're seeing here uh, in, in states across the country, including Florida. That would be with or without enthusiasm, frankly, for either political party right now. If this was just a normal election, but we had COVID dropped right into the middle of it, it might not be all that surprising to see that many vote-by-mail ballots coming in right now. So it's hard to tell if that's enthusiasm or if it's coronavirus just based on those numbers. But where it is possible to track which voters are turning out, at least early at this point, Democrats would seem to uh, have the early edge in that. Democrats have a significant 450,000 vote-by-mail lead through Monday. In other words, they can track vote-by-mail. They can track whether those are ballots coming from Republicans or Democrats. We don't know, of course, how they voted. But just if you go by the raw numbers of, you know, Democrats returning ballots versus Republicans versus independents, right now Democrats have a lead out of those 2.5 million ballots of 450,000 in their favor. But Republicans insist that Democrats are just cannibalizing their in-person vote. And that could be true. Hmm. Yeah, Put that another, does make sense. Yeah. Put another way, uh, the GOP says the Democrats are not gaining additional voters, but that voters in Biden's party are just changing how they participate in the election because of Democrats' greater emphasis on voting by mail during the global pandemic. Now, I would also add to that we have seen early enthusiasm, apparent enthusiasm by Democrats before in previous elections. We've seen them come out big on the first few days of early voting and Democrats get all excited. Oh, look at all those people lining up to vote in that very Democratic area. But then those numbers begin to fade as Republicans later catch up. And we have seen that enthusiasm before in uh, races where Democrats did not end up winning in the end. And I think I can't underscore that enough because I think there's a lot of excited Democrats out there seeing a lot of these numbers, understandably, in many cases. But if you have any laurels around, you should not rest on them. <laughs> there are still some indications, however, that something different may in fact be happening this time. So, you know, perhaps I should call this the caveat show because okay. we've got a lot of facts. We've got a lot of data and then we've got a lot, a lot of, of other this, facts and, and then on, the other hand. on the other side. Yeah. yeah. 
Now, Kamala Harris, uh, she held in-person rallies in Orlando and Jacksonville to try to boost enthusiasm on the first day of her in-person early voting on Monday in Florida, according to Politico. Her rally locations, they say, were not accidental. Or Orlando is in the middle of the fabled I-4 corridor. That's a 19-county swath of the state's notoriously swingy swing voters in those counties. Jacksonville, on the other hand, where she also spoke, has long been a Republican stronghold. Nonetheless, for the first time in recent political history, Jacksonville was actually won by Democrats during the 2018 midterm election, which now the Democrats hope to repeat in 2020. Early in the day on Monday, there was anecdotal evidence across the state that signaled there could be record turnout. There were lines forming in some of Florida's largest counties, which tend to vote Democratic, before the polls even opened at 7 a.m., even as rain soaked portions of South Florida. They were still out there before 7 a.m., before dawn. In many cases, we also saw that, by the way, in uh, in Texas and in Georgia, where voters were lining up before the polls even opened in the dark. Now they were doing it in the rain in Florida, in the dark, in the very strong Democratic (laughs) strongholds. Well, yes, those the Democratic strongholds. So, yes, it could be a huge wave of pent up energy to get out there and vote that then drops off. Well, we'll see. In Broward County, the Parkland mayor and uh, the incoming Democratic state rep, uh, Christine Hunchofsky, posted a video of those long lines at a polling site in that uh, in that county, in Broward County, which is one of Florida's most Democratic leaning. She tweeted, it is the longest line I have ever seen at early voting in Parkland. Pinellas County, which is a bellwether, it has voted for every winning presidential candidate but one since 1980. They also also, uh, quickly amassed record-setting numbers. So is it enthusiasm? Is it COVID? Is it fear of the U.S. Postal Service not delivering mail-in ballots on time or at all this year? We have, we, as I said, we've been seeing similar numbers uh, from both Georgia uh, and Texas, which now uh, both this year are to be considered battleground states as well. In some cases, as we've reported, long lines were due to uh, voting system breakdowns in those two states, in both Florida and te- I'm sorry, in both Georgia and Texas. But not in all of the cases in those states. They had big turnout just because they had big turnout. But again, we don't know. We don't know why. Is it because of COVID? Is it because of the Postal Service? All we can do is read the tea leaves. But Seattle writer and blogger David Goldie Goldstein, who uh, we haven't had on the show in years, but he offered some insight from, uh, from a state that does not have the same type of concerns about the dangers this year of in-person voting or of absentee ballot delivery since Washington state has been doing all mail elections for years and they have uh, tons of drop off locations that voters are very well used to using. Nonetheless, they are. Well, Goldie is uh, seeing something similar happening in Washington in a short Twitter thread on Monday. He observed, I know the uh, national political press couldn't care less about what's happening on the ground in solid blue states like Washington. Well, I do, David. (laughs) 
Uh, he says, but I've been obsessively analyzing Seattle elections since 2004, and I can tell you that something special is unfolding here. He says, typically ballots trickle in over the first week. They slowly ramp up and then they flood in at the end. 65 to 80 percent of ballots come in the final few days of the election. He said, Seattle voters simply do not vote early. We just don't. Only this year, we are. Why, he asks. Well, in other parts of the country, COVID has severely impacted voting patterns, but that offers no explanation here. Washington has been all vote by mail since 2006. COVID changes nothing here. Likewise, Early voting is also off the charts in vote-by-mail pioneer of uh, neighboring Oregon. This makes Washington and Oregon, he says, the control group in a difference experiment. Is the surge in early voting nationwide entirely due to COVID and or anxiety over voters' depression and U.S. Postal Service slowdowns? The surge here, where none of that comes into play, suggests no. My guess, he writes, is that a lot of people are voting early because they just can't wait to vote. And if that level of enthusiasm translates into record voter turnout, the likely voter models are all shot to hell, he writes. Well, he's talking about when he talks about the voter models, he's talking about the voter models that pollsters and pundits and campaigns and forecasters generally use to guess at results. Yeah, the different kinds of data and inputs that they use to then come up with a range of potential outcomes, you know, thousands of potential outcomes. Well, it is the mix, specifically the mix of Democrats and Republicans and independents when they're taking pollings, uh, uh, polling. It's the mix of uh, who they essentially who they think are going to show up and in what proportions. So even if you presume that people are not lying to pollsters, which is not always a safe presumption. But let's for here, let's let's make that presumption that the people talking to the pollsters, telling them who they're going to vote for and if they are going to vote, et cetera, that they are all telling the truth. Let's assume that for the moment, even if that is the case, pollsters then have to make essentially educated guesses as to what the makeup, the final makeup of the electorate will then be when all is said and done, which is some mix of Democrats and Republicans and independents. And it is in those numbers, that mix of uh, who will actually show up to vote, that's what makes up the polling numbers that you see and the predictions that you see as far as who is going to win in the various forecasts where Biden has a lead of X percent in any particular state, for example. But if those voter models are all shot to hell, as David Goldstein suggests could be the case, then the numbers that you are seeing with you know Biden ahead in various states, those numbers could be way off. He could be much farther ahead than the polls even suggest right now, which would lead to a much larger win for Joe Biden if, in fact, he is to win. And I can hear you now saying, Brad, don't talk about that. Don't talk <laughs> about him being a, not only ahead, but even farther ahead. Well, He could be, if David Goldstein is right about the models being shot to hell. On the other hand, that's also true for Donald Trump. If the models are off, 
as they were, by the way, in 2016, Donald Trump could be the beneficiary of bad poll modeling at this point. That wouldn't seem to be the case in uh, theoretically deep blue states like Washington and Oregon, but in fact, nobody knows. Nobody knows. So yes, it's the caveat show. There is, however, one more tea leaf that I think is worth, if not reading, at least knowing about. And that's when it comes to, you know, gauging enthusiasm among the electorate as we're trying to figure all of this out. And that would be candidate fundraising, specifically Senate candidate fundraising. Now, mind you, Again, it's, you know, don't read this leaf, but know about this leaf. And as you're hearing about all of these tea leaves, please know that there are a thousand X factors that we spend much of our time on this show reporting on. The voter suppression, the uh, voting machines that don't work, the voting machines that can be hacked or flipped or are just wrong. All of that can come into play. But we're talking about things that, for now, we know about. So when it comes to this specifically, the, this uh, fundraise, candidate fundraising specifically for Senate candidates, this is not the unlimited money to super PACs and to outside groups, but to specific campaigns on which there is a limit on how much each donor can actually give. So it's a it's a bit it's a better gauge uh, at least of apples to apples comparisons in in how the electorate are feeling about their candidates right now. Daily Coast Elections today reports on the third quarter numbers which are uh, now in as of today. And if this is any signal for Republicans and I again don't know that it is, if it is a signal it's decidedly a very bad signal for Republicans. They write, uh, Daily Coast does, uh, we said two weeks ago that this fundraising quarter would be unlike any we've ever seen, and we were more right than we knew, they say. Altogether, Democratic candidates competing in this year's Senate races raised $401 million from donors, while Republicans took in 163 million dollars so about a quarter it sounds like or a third it's hard to yeah 400 million to 163 million i mean yeah. it's not even close they say this is a gulf that would have been simply unthinkable even during the 2018 blue wave a total of four upper chamber candidates all democrats beat the 38 million dollar senate quarterly fundraising record that was set just 2 years ago by Beto O'Rourke remember when everyone was freaking out about how much money he was Beto was uh, was winning down there was was receiving down there in Texas 38 million dollars in a single quarter well uh, four candidates have now beat that then record now again caveat Beto O'Rourke did not go on to win, did That's he? That's correct. He got all that money, and he still didn't win. He came really close. He came really close, closer than anybody thought possible in a state like Texas at the time. But close is not good enough. Correct. So thank you for that caveat. <laughs> uh, the uh, top honor they note as far as fundraising goes to Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, who took in a truly stunning $57.2 million. For his bid against South Carolina's uh, Lindsey Graham, $57.2 million. And again, the record was just two years ago, $38 million. That was in Texas. This is in South Carolina. 
Graham, by contrast, uh, raised uh, less than half of that with 28 million. Nonetheless, that was the most of any Senate Republican this year. The second largest quarterly haul, quarterly haul went to Maine's Sarah Gideon. She outpaced Susan Collins by a lopsided 38.8 to 7.9 million. Wow. Got that? Yeah. In Arizona, Mark Kelly outpaced, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Mark Kelly outpaced Martha McSally 38.3 to 22 million. Even in Kentucky, Democrat Amy McGrath outraised Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell 35.5 million to 15 million for Mitch McConnell. Again, none of this means that any of those candidates will win because fundraising can also come from outside of the state, which, by the way, should be illegal. Let me just note that here and now. Someday I would love to see a constitutional amendment that says you cannot donate to a candidate if you cannot vote for that candidate, which would also have the lovely side benefit of keeping corporations from donating to any candidates since corporations are not people and they cannot vote. But I digress. The fundraising battle was uh, also one-sided in favor of the Dems in most of the other close Senate contest in Iowa. The Democrat Teresa Greenfield uh, more than lapped the Republican incumbent Joni Ernst. Joni Ernst. She took in uh, 28.4 million compared to Ernst's 7.2 million. Not even close. In North Carolina, the Democrat Cal Cunningham outraised Tom Tillis, the incumbent Republican, 28 million to 6.2 million. Colorado Democrat uh, John Hickenlooper, uh, Hickenlooper <laughs> t- uh, trounced the Republican incumbent Cory Gardner, 22.3 million to 7.7 million. Starting to see a pattern here. Democrats also far outpaced Republicans in contests where the GOP is still favored to win. For example, Al Gross in Alaska. He's an independent running as the Democrats nominee. He took 9.2 million in Alaska. Compared to the incumbent Republican, Dan Sullivan, who got $1.7 million. In uh, the regularly scheduled Senate race in Georgia, John Ossoff outpaced the Republican incumbent, uh, David Perdue, $21 million to $5.5 million. Raphael Warnock, who's running, uh, he's the most prominent Democrat in the uh, in the special Georgia U.S. Senate special election. They have, remember, they have two Senate elections this year. Both of them could go to runoffs if no candidate receives more than 50%. Well, Warnock took in uh, $12.8 million, and that is much more than any of the uh, other contenders from either party in that race. And in Kansas, in Kansas, Barbara Bollier, the Democrat uh, running for the open U.S. Senate seat there, outraised the Republican 13.3 to 2.9 million. Montana's Democratic uh, uh, governor who's running for the U.S. Senate, Steve Bullock, he outhauled Republican Steve Daines 26.5 million to 11.5 million. In Texas, the Democrat, M.J. Hagar, who's running against John Cornyn, outpaced him $14 million to $7 million. So this is wildly consistent, almost all the way across the board. 
even with some of the races that Democrats are expected to lose, and there's really only two U.S. Senate races they're uh, likely to lose, actually one they're likely to lose, the other one the GOP hopes they lose. Uh, in Alabama, Senator Doug Jones, uh, he's the most vulnerable. Uh, he's um, uh, He outpaced Republican uh, candidate Tommy Tuberville 10 million to 3 million. But he's still expected to lose. Still expected to lose. Mike Espy, the, uh, this is uh, interesting, uh, the Democrat Mike Espy also outraised Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, $4.1 million to 816000 in Mississippi for a, contra- a contest that nobody has been uh, looking at at all. The only place where a Republican appears to have outraised the Democrat was Republican Senator Bill Cassidy in Louisiana. He outraised Adrian Perkins barely, 1.4 million to 1.3 million. But it's notable because it's a Louisiana now a very re- reliably red state it seems on the federal level. The uh, only competitive Senate race where the fundraising battle was was even close was where Democratic incumbent Gary Peters thought, along with Doug Jones in Alabama, to be the only real pickup possibility for Republicans. He barely edged out his uh, Republican opponent, 14.4 million to 14.3 million. So make of all of that what you will. And I know a lot of Democrats out there have PTSD after 2016. <laughs> I know I do. Yeah, I know you do. Uh, so, uh, you know, would be like like to be very careful about all of this right now. I hear you and I join you. But I think it's also worth noting where things seem to be going very well for Democrats, because you don't want to hear bad, terrible, scary news all the time. Right. Right. So let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with some bad, terrible, and very scary news (laughs) next, right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Speaking of bad, terrible, scary news, I forgot to uh, mention, as uh, you've got a green news report coming up a little bit uh, later here today. My apologies for missing that. Yeah. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with the delightful Desi Doyen by my side. Uh, On yesterday's Bradcast, I reported on the the Michigan State Court of Appeals, where a three-judge panel of judges, all appointed by former Republican Governor Rick Snyder, That court reversed a lower state court ruling that had allowed mail-in ballots to be counted as long as they were postmarked in Michigan by November 2nd. That's the day before the election day for up to two weeks after election day. The court said that it was up to the... um, the, uh, the the court overruled the court of appeals overruled the lower court saying that it was not up to that lower court it was up to the legislature in this case this is the republicans gerrymandered legislature in michigan to decide such things the court could not do it 
Apparently, no matter how much it violates the voters' right to vote in Michigan and to have their vote counted as legally cast before Election Day. Remember, postmarked by November 2nd, if the uh, if they were then slowed up thanks to the U.S. Postal Service, they should still be counted, the judge said, but not the three Republicans on the appellate court, the state appellate court. The panel declared uh, that it was up to the legislature, not to that lower court judge, who said there was no question that the Postal Service was being slowed down and that could uh, very well disenfranchise voters through no fault of their own and that that would violate the state's constitutional right to vote that in a state that Trump is said to have won by about a thousand votes in 2016 and a state which tossed which rejected 6400 mail-in votes in this last uh, August primary because those ballots showed up too late to be counted after Election Day. So bad news for Michigan yesterday. Well, right after we got off air, you may have seen what many are regarding today as good news out of Pennsylvania. An evenly divided U.S. Supreme Court said on Monday that it is declining to block the Pennsylvania state Supreme Court ruling, allowing mail-in ballots in the crucial battleground state to be counted as long as they are postmarked by Election Day even if they arrive up to three days later, three days after Election Day. So the uh, Republicans stolen U.S. Supreme Court tied on that matter four to four with Chief Justice John Roberts apparently joining the three liberal justices to not set aside that state Supreme Court ruling. Got it? The order from the uh, high court, according to Politico, is a victory for Democrats as the presidential campaigns prepare for an all-out battle for Pennsylvania's 20 electoral votes. Well, it's true. It is a victory for Democrats because more of them are voting by mail than, uh, than are Republicans. So it's a victory for Democrats, at least in the short term, at least for this election at least for this particular ruling in this election from the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. But it is a victory that, frankly, the U.S. Supreme Court should not have been looking at at all because it was a state Supreme Court judging the rules of its own state in an election based on the state's constitution. Our friend and recent guest on this program, University of Kentucky election law professor uh, and author Josh Douglas, had a word or two to say in response to the fact that there were four Republican appointees on the current six to three U.S. Supreme Court that were more than happy to take up this state case, which arguably they shouldn't have had anything to do with at all. Josh writes, it's a big deal. Normally, the U.S. Supreme Court will not hear cases from state courts about state law. This decision was under Pennsylvania state constitution's protection of the right to vote. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court had extended absentee ballot deadlines due to the pandemic, saying that the Pennsylvania Constitution's free and equal clause required expanded voter access. That should have ended the matter, Professor Douglas notes. But Pennsylvania Republicans argued 
that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision altered the, quote, manner of running elections under Article One, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution, which allows state legislatures to determine the times, places, and manner of holding elections. In other words, they made a federal case out of it. And the four, at least four appointees to the U.S. Supreme Court bought it. Pennsylvania Republicans also argued that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision changed the manner of determining presidential electors, which again is for the legislature to determine, according to the uh, U.S. Constitution. But Josh writes, it's a terrible argument, but for three justices back in 2000 in Bush v. Gore who bought a similar argument. In this case, four justices, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, would all have granted the request by Republicans in Pennsylvania to hear this case. They signaled that they are open to hearing cases from state Supreme Courts, which had construed state constitutions. He says, guess what happens when you add a fifth vote from likely soon-to-be Justice Barrett? Yep, he says, U.S. Supreme Court could review decisions of state courts under state constitutions. Why is this a big deal, he writes? Well, federal court rulings on the right to vote have been very narrow. But 49 of 50 state constitutions include affirmative right to vote clauses. That's unlike the U.S. Constitution, which does not. The U.S. Constitution only says vaguely that the right to vote shall not be abridged for various reasons, but it does not affirmatively include a right to vote for all citizens, unlike many state constitutions that actually do. Previously, state courts could rightly say that they do not uh, need to follow federal court jurisprudence when it comes to the right to vote because their state constitution actually goes farther in protecting that right than the federal government does. So they could ignore the federal government entirely on those matters. But now the U.S. Supreme Court, he, uh, uh, Josh Douglas writes, could intervene in these cases because they supposedly take away power from the, quote, legislature, which, remember, the legislature is supposed to set the manner for elections, according to the U.S. Constitution. And now four U.S. Supreme Court justices, perhaps soon to be five, believe uh, that that clause takes precedence over the right to vote clauses in state constitutions. Does that make sense? Do you understand why this is a concern? Oh, at yes. This point? It makes total sense to me that these the right wingers on the stolen Supreme Court <laughs> are willing to intervene in state constitutional disputes. And if they're willing to do that, then there really is nothing to stop them. Remember when Republicans used to pretend to care about states' rights? <laughs> That was darling, wasn't it? So uh, as uh, Douglas goes on to note, uh, this opens the door for the U.S. Supreme Court now to hear questions how state courts are construing their own state constitutions. And it means that state legislatures might not be constrained by state constitutions at all. He says, if you think that's absurd, you're right. But state legislatures are created by state constitutions. So shouldn't state constitutions dictate the boundaries of what the state legislatures can and cannot do? He says, maybe not if the state legislature is regulating a federal election. 
He says he doesn't know for sure uh, that Justice Barrett will rule with the other four. He says we don't know that they would definitely rule that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision improperly took power away from the legislature. We don't know how it will. Uh, the court will end up reading the word legislature in the U.S. Constitution because they didn't get there. But we had four justices maybe soon five, who were willing to do so, who are willing to go there and find out. He says the signals are not good here. The four so-called conservatives have indicated they are at least open to this argument that state Supreme Court decisions under state constitutions could violate the delegation of authority to the legislature from the U.S. Constitution. Not unlike what we saw in Bush v. Gore when the U.S. Supreme Court essentially overruled the Florida State Supreme Court concerning the Florida's uh, Constitution. Josh Douglas writes, I'm not optimistic. So while today's 4-4 ruling dodges a bullet for now, that bullet is coming very soon, he says. State constitutions were a strong protector of the constitutional right to vote. That could be undermined if the court goes down this path. Does this mean a state legislature could thwart the will of the voters in their state and award electoral college votes however they want? Douglas says, I don't think so, as due process concerns are still present, but the U.S. Constitution still provides some protections, he says. I hope they do, but that could happen. He says the project of cutting off most avenues to protect the constitutional right to vote takes a big step forward with those four votes that we saw on Monday and then the addition of the uh, new Justice Barrett, who we could see seated within a week or so. So if you're feeling good after that A block... Hopefully I've completely ruined it here in the B block. <laughs> and if I haven't yet ruined it here in the B block... There is still Desi Doyen and the Green, the Green News, News Report. Report in the C Block straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I kid, I tweak, I uh, make fun of you and the Green News Report as if it's you know terrible, nothing but uh, bad well, news. It often is. It often is, and there's some pretty bad news in today's Green News Report, but it is not terrible. There's actually some good news at the end of today's Green News Report. In northern Colorado, firefighters scrambling to contain the monster Cameron Peak Fire burning since mid-August, now the largest wildfire in state history. Massive Colorado wildfires force thousands to evacuate. Wind and solar energy, now the cheapest energy in the world, plus... The future rests in renewable energy. Joe Biden talks clean energy and infrastructure jobs at ABC Town Hall. 
Did Donald Trump talk about it at the NBC Town Hall? Nope. Weird. All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Joyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Let's talk about wildfires, a.k.a. the coronavirus of the forest. True. They're getting worse, not going away, costing Americans billions, are taking people's lives, and the President of the United States is clueless about them, in denial, and wishes we'd stop talking about it. This is your... Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, even though there are more Republican Donald Trump voters in California than any other state in the union... He really hates California. <laughs> yes, yes, he must, because Trump is jerking around with disaster aid for California. First, the Trump administration late last week very publicly rejected California's request for disaster aid from record-breaking wildfires, saying Trump concurred that California didn't deserve it. And then after the completely predictable public outcry, Trump reversed himself. He does that a lot, doesn't he? Yep, and Colorado residents may now get to see if Trump plans to jerk them around too. Thousands were forced to evacuate from the new Calwood fire near Boulder that erupted over the weekend, straining firefighting resources already struggling to contain the explosive Cameron Peak fire near Fort Collins. That one has burned since August and has grown to be the largest fire in the state's history. So five of the six largest fires in California history have taken place this year here in California and now the largest fire in Colorado history also this year, but I'm sure it's just a coincidence. (laughs) Well, 2020 is one of the worst wildfire seasons ever for both California and Colorado, driven by high winds and extremely dry conditions, especially in Colorado as October snows have failed to appear. Climate scientists warn that wildfires are now hotter, more intense, and more destructive because of man-made climate change. Did Donald Trump complain that Colorado doesn't rake their leaves in the forests? Not yet. I'm sure he'll get around to it. New wildfires have also erupted in Utah as well. Oh, well, he definitely won't complain about them not raking leaves in Utah. Well, the 2020 fire season has been historic in the U.S. West, with nearly every state battling active wildfires. More than 46,000 fires have burned this year in the United States, scorching more than 8 million acres so far. And more than 4 million of them have been right here in California. In Brazil, a heat wave has spread across a large swath of South America, setting multiple records and triggering wildfires in the world's largest tropical wetland. The New York Times reports that roughly a quarter of the vast Pantanal wetlands in Brazil, one of the most biodiverse places on Earth, have burned in wildfires intensified by climate change. Wildfires also leave much more behind than just destroyed forests and homes. A new study warns that rising smoke plumes contain more than just lung-damaging particles, but can also contain cancer-causing chemicals in the smoke that disperse into the air, the soil, water, and even into indoor dust. But they say more research is needed to understand how much and how to mitigate these chemical contaminants. In U.S. politics, at a town hall hosted by ABC News late last week, held after Donald Trump pulled out of a scheduled presidential debate, former Vice President Joe Biden got an opportunity to expand, without interruption, on his proposals to create jobs in upgrading the nation's infrastructure and transitioning to 100 percent clean energy. We're going to put 500,000 charging stations on new highways we're building and old highways we're building. 
There are over, well over 100,000 wells that are left uncapped in the region. Mm-hmm. We could hire 128,000 of these people who are working in the industry to cap these wells and get a good salary doing it now. Put close to a million people to work by weatherizing 4 million buildings and 2 million homes. The NBC News town hall with Donald Trump aired at the same time, but climate policy and jobs did not come up. Climate is a topic in the final presidential debate of 2020 on Thursday, so for the first time in U.S. history, climate change will be a topic of all three general election debates. We'll see. Donald Trump is working the refs, whining about the moderator and the topic, so we'll see if climate change is still in by the time they get there. Finally, there is some very good news. The infamously cautious and conservative inter- International Energy Agency finally confirms previous research showing that wind and solar power are now the cheapest form of new electricity in nearly all of the world today and will continue to fall in price. The report suggests the transition to clean electricity is unstoppable. That is good news. For much more on all of these stories and the many we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. No, you can't stop the world and you can't stop the plummeting prices of cheap electricity from renewable energy. See, I told you it wasn't that bad. Yeah, so there's a little bit of good news when the fuel is free forever. Sure, it's going to be cheaper. The fuel fuel. is free? Yes, the sun is free. Oh, I see. The wind is free. And no matter how hard Republicans try, they cannot charge you for the sun or the wind, at least not yet. And remember when Republicans used to pretend that they cared about saving money for taxpayers? (laughs) That, too, was darling. (laughs) That was. Gotta get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other we have ever done, uh, since the beginning of time, you can download it for free at bradblog.com. All of this made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. Throw a few dollars in the tip jar to keep uh, Desi and I with enough fuel to keep going here, at least throughout this election. That's bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you in advance. You can drop me email as well if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me at the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.